You're listening to 85.7 FM, The Fizz. Coming up is Quiet Up There, hosted by me, Cameron Perry. Unless you're turning up the volume, leave those dials alone, because we've got smooth waves heading your way. 85.7 FM, The Fizz. Quiet Up There! Welcome to the first episode of Quiet Up There. I'm your host, Cameron Perry. Some of you may know me as FizzGig or Fizz, and to be clear, I don't have a preference for what you call me, so long as you don't call me late for dinner. The first question about the show I figure you have is, what's it about? That is a very good question. And the honest, self-centered answer is that it's about me, Cameron Perry, my life, my experiences, and how I interpret them. The second question I can guess is coming is, what's with the name? Another great question. Wow, you're, you're on fire today. The name of the show is Quiet Up There, and it has two meanings. The first reason is because I'm loud and rowdy, and I was even louder and rowdier when I was younger. And my parents were frequently yelling up the stairs to tell me to be quiet, you know? And maybe not always exactly stating, but otherwise intending to say, quiet up there. The second reason the show is called that is because as I've gotten quieter and less rowdy with age, my mind has done the opposite. And I find myself having to stop my train of thought and tell my brain to shut up a second more and more often. Maybe not always exactly stating, but otherwise intending to say, quiet up there. The show is very much going to be different week to week depending on what I decide to talk about, but as you might be able to guess from the title of this episode, Yum, we are going to be talking about food, but not just food, cooking, but not just cooking, movies about cooking, wild stuff, I know, but the first film I watched this week about cooking was The Menu. The Menu is a horror comedy from November 2022. It was directed by Mark Malad, who you might know from directing such hit films as Ollie G in the House. What's going down and stay in town, my n- Yo, n- we just be cold chilling, kicking back, sucking on some. An odd choice for sure, but it pays off. Mark Malad is able to balance a comedic tone while having the characters remain serious. For us, the audience, the situation is ludicrous and often laugh out loud funny. But for the characters in the scene, the danger is always real. This allows you to enjoy the film as a light comedy while also being sucked into its story and themes. The film, funnily enough, is a perfect three-course meal, serving up characters, laughs, and thrills all in one. The screenplay was written by Seth Rice and Will Tracy. Seth Rice comes from writing for The Onion's Sports Dome TV show and The New Yorker's Shouts and Murmurs TV show. Will Tracy comes from writing Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and the HBO hit show Secession. Both of these writers come from writing dark comedy, satire, and it shows. These writers' ability to blend real-world issues of class, wealth disparity, and all while being critical of artists like themselves is masterful. If you've seen the trailer for the film, I'm sure you've seen how beautifully it's shot. While I must admit to being a dirty, grainy frame lover myself, I can still appreciate a well-shot, magnificently lit film when I see one. The style to me feels very intentionally to be copying the look of shows like Top Chef. The menu's cinematographer Peter Deming is one of the greats. His work ranges from more experimental work, like being director of photography for David Lynch's Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks, to horror comedies like Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2 and Drag Me to Hell, and even goes all the way out to full-blown comedy with things like Austin Powers' Golden Member and my personal favorite, Now You See Me Too. It isn't just who's behind the camera that makes this film great, but who's in front of it as well. The Menu has a star-studded cast, which I will list in order from favorite to least favorite. Starting with number one, John Leguizamo. The film is about a world-famous chef, Chef Slowick, played by Rafe Fiennes. While Chef Slowick is not the protagonist of the film, he does steal the show. Chef Slowick runs an insanely expensive, insanely exclusive private island restaurant. We learn that the staff live on the island, harvesting all of their ingredients from the island itself. 
We also see that Chef Slowick, as their head chef, functions more like a cult leader, demanding complete trust and obedience from his sous chefs. Having grown callous and cynical towards the food industry and cooking in general, Chef Slowick creates five unique and thematically connected courses that are to die for. He sets the table and waits for his esteemed guests to arrive, none of them quite seeming to know just what exactly is on the menu. Slowick ends up inviting his angel investors' three partners, played by Rob Yang, Mark St. Cyr, and Arturo Castro. Hope I said those right. The critic who claims she put Slowick on the map, played by Janet McTeer, as well as her brown-nosing lackey, played by Paul Adelston, also appear in the film. His two most frequent guests at the restaurant, played by Judith Light and Reed Bernie, respectively, are invited. An out-of-work actor, played by the great John Leguizamo, and his agent, played by Aime Carrero. Chef Slowick's own mother, played by Rebecca Kuhn, and an overzealous foodie, played by Nicholas Holt and his girlfriend, are also invited. But Slowick is thrown when the foodie is accompanied not by his girlfriend, but by our protagonist, Margot Mills, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. What ensues is one of the most clear-cut and evocative social commentaries on the rich, artists, and critics I've seen in a while. Its message of eat the rich being all but literal. For me, this is a 4 out of 5, making it a must-watch. I think anyone can enjoy this film, bearing, of course, children. But it's fun, it's fast, and it says a lot without feeling preachy, but I must admit that I did find myself calling out preach and amen at a few pivotal moments. The menu is the dark timeline version of Ratatouille and John Favreau's Chef, and I'm not just saying that because they're about food. Both Chef and Ratatouille take time out of their stories to talk to the audience about the role of critics and the lack of risk they take in critiquing someone else's hard work. All art preferences taste, so what better metaphor than the art of cooking? Where Chef and Ratatouille seem to come to the same conclusion that it's easy to critique something when you don't have to feel the heat of the kitchen, and so long as you are doing what you love and no one gets hurt, artists should keep doing what they're doing. The menu comes to the conclusion that all people involved in art should die. It calls itself self-centered, overpaid, and ultimately deems the current state of the art community a monster. I would like to point out that it does not call art itself a monster, merely the parasites that glom onto it for some sort of financial or egotistical gain. Food is never used to kill or even harm someone. People use it to insult each other and create scornful meaning, but the food itself is still food. Art is still art. Never blame the art, only its artist's use of it. I think Billy Loomis said it best in Wes Craven's 1996 classic Scream when he said, Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Art did not make these people greedy or self-centered. It was just a way for them to get richer or to confirm their own greatness. If your food review can make or break a restaurant's success, you would feel important and your ego would expand. It's a film that depicts the art industry as an overcrowded, self-important house. To me, the film is saying, Rather than burning down the house entirely, we should instead simply clean house and burn the scum we dredge up. I loved the menu, and while its ending in my mind was uplifting, it did leave a cynical taste in my mouth. To cleanse that palate, I decided to watch John Favreau's Chef, which I had never seen before. Chef is a comedy drama from 2014, written, directed, and starred by John Favreau. Mr. Favreau is most known today for directing things like Mandalorian, the first two Iron Man movies, and the Lion King remake. Chef is very well directed. Every time a cookie montage started, my stomach began to growl. It isn't just visuals that Favreau nails, but his performance as well. John Favreau has always been really good with getting natural performances, excluding the Lion King remake. Especially in children, excluding the Lion King remake. Kid actors get a bad rep. It's a profession and a skill, one that takes honing and patience, two things you just don't have as a child. The goal of a director with child actors, in my mind, should not be to make their performances realistic, but to make it not annoying. 
So often, child actors fall into just being plain annoying. And that's when we get situations like Jake Lloyd as young Anakin. No hate on Jake Lloyd. Nothing wrong with The Phantom Menace is his fault. But George Lucas failed him as a director by not directing his performance to not being annoying. Jake Lloyd has been suffering from George Lucas' failings for basically his whole life. Basically, all of that was a long way of saying that MJ Anthony, the actor that plays the main character in Chef's son, does a good job. He's not annoying and it wasn't distracting. I mentioned the film stars Jon Favreau himself, but that's not all it stars. This film is another star-studded affair featuring such amazing talents as John Leguizamo. The film serves up a fantastic story about a passionate chef who has put his life and duties as a father aside to pursue his dream of cooking, his passion. We see from the very opening of the movie that Chef Carl Casper, played by John Favreau, loves what he does and he's good at it. In the kitchen, he's in control. His sous chefs listen to his every command and are willing to follow him down any culinary road he takes them. Tonight, with the world's most famous food critic and the critic who put Chef Carl on the map coming, Carl is trying something creative. Sharing his vision with his team, we see that they are all more than excited to do this. They are passionate about cooking, and Chef Carl's passion fuels their passion. They all just want to create. Just as the team is about to start, the owner, played by Dustin Hoffman, walks in wanting to confirm that the menu will be the same as it's always been. Chef Carl tells the owner the restaurant is in a creative rut, and this is a way to break free from that. The owner doesn't care, and informs Carl that they are the most successful restaurant on their street. He tells Carl it's because people like what he's been making, and they don't want anything new. Carl's previously unshakable faith has been shaken. The owner leaves the decision to Carl. Does he want to take the safe route and play the hits, or does he want to risk it all and try something new? He decides to stick with the usual menu, but it's important to note that ultimately, it was Chef Carl's decision. His team, though less enthused, still follows his lead with barely a word or gripe. When the critic, played by Oliver Platt, releases a scathing review deeming Chef Carl an unoriginal hack that has lost his passion for cooking, Carl is destroyed. After discovering Twitter, it was 2014, give him a break, Carl calls out the critic and tells him to come down to the restaurant tonight where he will be serving the menu he was meant to. The tweet goes viral and now the restaurant is booked out the wazoo. With this sudden flow of traffic mixed with the social media controversy now surrounding Chef Carl, the owner puts his foot down, telling Carl he's to serve the same thing again. When Carl refuses, the owner threatens to fire him and Carl walks out. He expects his sous chef Tony, played by Bobby Cannavale, to walk out with him but he doesn't even look back at Carl. Carl's loyal friend, Martin, played by John Leguizamo, tries to storm out with Carl, but Chef Carl stops him, telling John Leguizamo when he finds a better position, he'll get Martin a job. But until then, this position is too good to walk away from. The critic, not privy to the behind the scenes, begins to taunt Chef Carl on Twitter for serving the same menu despite his tweet. Carl breaks and storms into the restaurant, calling out the critic for not even understanding how to cook. All eyes in the restaurant are on Chef Carl as he rants and raves and smashes molten lava cakes. The clip goes viral, and suddenly, the only job offers Carl gets are because of his notoriety and not his skill as a chef. Carl just wants to cook. Chef Carl is convinced by his friend slash co-worker Molly, played by Scarlett Johansson, to use his time off to connect with his son and make up for the lost time. While reconnecting with his ex-wife Inez, played by so Sofia Vergara, Vergara, I don't know, and his son Percy, played by MJ Anthony, Inez convinces him to buy a food truck and begin selling Cuban sandwiches from Florida to California with their son, and of course, his best friend Martin, aka Johnny Leg. The rest of the film is a heart-touching story about a son and father connecting with each other for the first time and a man reconnecting with his true passion. The film ends, spoilers, with the critic Oliver Platt offering to back Chef Carl in a new restaurant venture where he can make whatever he wants. 
Despite their differences, Chef Carl respects the critic and they shake hands, now working together to create great food. I loved this film, and watching it, for me, was an enriching experience that will stick with me for years to come. I'll get into why in a minute. I plan to show this film to people who previously only knew it as that joke movie iDubs makes fun of. I recommend this film to those that feel they've lost their passion, faith, or just anyone who considers themselves an artist. If you're looking for a light film with a lot of heart, this film is for you. It's funny and heartwarming in ways that don't come across as tacky or overdone. For this reason, I'm giving it a 3 out of 5. Bearing in mind, that's a 6 out of 10. Now let's talk about Iron Man 2. I think it's important I point out that this is far from my original observation. John Favreau has come out and talked about it some, but I came across this way of looking at the film in a YouTube video from the very entertaining and informative Mr. Sunday Movies called Chef, a movie really about Iron Man. It's made by James Moves' longtime editor, Ben, and I can't recommend it enough. I've been a fan of the Weekly Meso for almost as long as Ben's been editing for BigSunday.co, and as I'm sure you'll find, they have inspired a lot of my own podcasts, so please go check them out. YouTube.com slash MrSundayMovies, and a link to that video should be in the show notes below. To break it down simply, John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. made the MCU. I think it would be unfair to say they are unsung heroes when because of the MCU, Robert Downey Jr. has become one of the highest paid actors of all time, and John Favreau has gone on to direct a whole slew of multi-hundred million dollar projects, and there are a million different videos on YouTube talking about them like gods. But it is important in this instance to point out that Iron Man was a success because of the creativity and passion of John Favreau, and to a lesser extent, Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark's Iron Man. Like Chef Carl, Favreau's infectious passion spreads to the whole team and is what put him, Iron Man, and the MCU in general on the proverbial map. Now, do I believe that something puts you on the map? No. Favreau had already been a prolific creative director and actor, and to say that Iron Man was what made him is to admit you don't know anything about Favreau's career. That being said, yes, the film was a success and opened every door in front of Jon Favreau, and naturally, he chose Iron Man too. People recognized his genius, his passion, and his skill, and that it had spread through his crew into the film, onto the screen, and across the world. He had the world in his hands. He could make the Iron Man film of his dreams, and he dreamed big. Looking at storyboards, concept art, and just general behind-the-scenes talk on the pre-production, it is clear that Iron Man 2 was envisioned as a different film entirely. Jon Favreau wanted to be sad, the Spider-Man 2 of the Iron Man films, the darkest chapter as Empire Strikes Back, something that takes your cheesy, cartoonish concept and makes it a tangible and real world, focusing on character and evolution rather than spectacle and repetition. Kevin Feige, executive producer at Marvel, told Jon he shouldn't take the risk. How much Feige pushed Favreau and argued for more of the same, I don't know. But based on the representation in Chef, it's safe to assume that the ultimate decision on where the direction of Iron Man 2 went was on Favreau. Everyone behind the scenes was excited for Favreau's vision, but someone gave him cold feet and he followed what the studio said. It's fairly apparent that Marvel bullies their directors to create the products they want instead of the art that the director envisioned, which makes you wonder what the point of a director even is at that point. Favreau went through the motions. He made Iron Man 2, meaning he did it again, T-O-O and audiences noticed. Like the critic, everyone was quick to attack Favreau for not innovating and instead relying on the now worn tricks he'd used in the first movie. I'm sure this fueled Favreau's fire when he was offered to direct the Avengers. He was going to make it different, show the fans, the haters, the critics what he could do when he put his heart and soul into his craft. 
The reception of Iron Man 2 had Feige a little nervous, so he told Favreau that the Avengers was not the place to experiment, and that people were coming to see the hits, not his creativity. So Favreau walked away. In the context of the metaphor, I can only imagine that Favreau asking his sous chef, second-in-command Tony, to leave with him is a reference to Robert Downey Jr., who plays Tony Stark in the Iron Man movie, staying with Marvel after Favreau left. But technically so did Favreau. In fact, Robert's gone now, but Favreau's character Happy Hogan just appeared in the last Spider-Man film, so the analogy gets a little muddy. It also falls apart when you see that Favreau still directs for Disney, doing all their CGI remakes and steering the ship for their Star Wars television slate. Chef going forward after Carl's departure, I can only imagine, is wish fulfillment on how Favreau wanted to handle himself and either how he sees where he ended up or where he wishes he had ended up, or at least at the time where he wished he had ended up. Where Chef found peace in making small food for the people and himself, Favreau seems to have found peace making big movies for the people. Whether his art is for himself, I can't tell, but it's easy to see the new wave of fans that have flocked back to Favreau once again seeing his creativity. Does Jon Favreau wish he had stopped making big budget film and gone back to making smaller, more meaningful creative films like Chef? Or does he see working for Disney and making these larger properties as feeding the people? There's a great moment in Chef where his son is going to serve somebody a burnt sandwich. The bread is burnt and Jon Favreau pulls, Chef Carl pulls his son aside and says, hey, listen, we're here to make food for the people like this is my art this is my passion now you can either go back in there and we can make the sandwich right and we can give it to the person who paid for it or you can leave my kitchen and i can't help but wonder if maybe favreau sees himself as the snake in the grass for disney you know the the man on the inside the robin hood of nerds whatever the case may be i hope you're happy john favreau because you deserve it you are an artist and a filmmaker. Nothing I've ever created even comes close to the feats you've achieved, and even my criticisms of The Lion King aren't really directed at you. Also, bear in mind, I refuse to watch any of the Disney remakes, and all of this is based on other people's criticisms I've seen. I know the real place to point my finger is at the mouse himself. Speaking of the mouse and mice, I decided to rewatch Ratatouille for the first time since I was probably 13 years old. Ratatouille is a 2007 animated family comedy. The animated feature was directed by Brad Bird, who most of you will no doubt know from his work on so many Disney and Pixar projects, my personal favorite being The Iron Giant. The film has some amazing casting choices that, having not seen this since I was much, much younger, I was able to appreciate now. Remy is voiced by Patton Oswalt, who even in voice alone I find endearing. We also have great actors like Will Arnett, Brad Garrett, Peter O'Toole, and Ian Holm voicing characters in this. Being a little bit more of a film buff now, it's easy to see the amount of talent that went into this film. Ratatouille pulls out all the stops, except one. I will have to deduct points from the film for not featuring John Leguizamo. I mean, just one of the biggest L's in cinematic history. Ratatouille tells the story of a rat named Remy, played by Patton Oswalt. Remy dreams of one day being a chef like his late great French icon and imaginary friend, Auguste Gusteau. Being a rat means humans will never take him seriously as a chef, and his family never lets him forget it. The film's moral that anyone can cook boiling down to anyone can create, or creation can come from anywhere, is beautiful. 
and one I wish I could hold in my mind more frequently. For 2007, this film is beautiful. All of the beauty shots of Paris and the food made me wonder if Pixar's animation hasn't somehow taken a step back in the last decade or so. But I'd have to recheck out more to really make that claim. The music is fitting and builds a light fun atmosphere growing somber when it needs to and working really well with the visuals. I felt like I was in Paris. I will say that I watched this while working out, which I feel may have been the right call. The film bounces from being an average kid's film to being tear-jerkingly sentimental. It will leap from sight gags, poop jokes, and just all around what I would describe as minion humor to a monologue about art creation and, and the critique like it's a prophet without skipping a beat. It's a family film, and as such, it does get a concession in my brain for not being, well, the minions. If somehow this wasn't a children's movie, I'd give it a 3 out of 5. I'd recommend it to people that love film and those that have a particular appreciation for art and feel perhaps it is dead. But this is a children's film, and ultimately meant to put on in front of a 5 year old, and as such, earns for me a 4 out of 5. It has a great heart and a great message for all ages to hear. It can be an enriching experience if you really listen to what it's saying. The film says a few things about art, and the one I think I took to more as a kid was the moral of being yourself. Remy's father tells him he's a rat, and he'll never be anything other than a rat. My parents were not like Remy's father only because they weren't there enough to tell me not to be myself, bear in mind I was raised by television. The role instead went to my public school teachers. To quote the great Kid Cudi, ain't that many teachers shown me my potential, felt like a failure. But I will save my grievance with the education system I've lived through until I finish up my bachelor's degree. Fingers crossed that'll be in May. This time around, when I watched the film, I focused a bit more on the critic. I remember the scene at the end of him eating the ratatouille and flashing back to his childhood. What I did not recognize at the time was the power of that dish, that memory, of that creation. They call ratatouille peasant food, something seen as lesser, meant for the common people, not worthy of the sophisticated and aristocratic. Yet that food has the power to reinvigorate Anton Ego's passion for food. The scales of cynicism removed from his eyes, he remembered why he fell in love with food in the first place. It's the simple stuff. I feel like I become Anton Ego about every six months like clockwork. Instead of food, I love stories. Stories can do many things like entertain, educate, criticize. We told stories to each other before we could write them down. Story is my passion. And like Ego with his, I grow jaded and cynical towards it. When I'm in this ego state, I have a high opinion of my own opinion and I rant and rave with it like a Southern Baptist at an abortion clinic. That's actually a pretty good way to see me when I'm in that state. So to picture me when the problem happens, just picture Flat Stanley protesting at a gay funeral. In spirit and metaphor, of course, not literally. So when I'm waving my proverbial homophobic picket sign, how I evidently come out of it, is just by sitting down and watching a bunch of old classics I haven't seen yet. I'm talking about the kinds of films that are still inspiring movies today. As an example, recently I watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly for the first time. Just so everyone is aware, I'm not hating, just pointing out, Tarantino has borrowed every single shot in this movie. And that's okay. It's actually what brought me out of my ego state. One of the early scenes in the film is almost identical to the opening of Inglorious Bastards, which, if you don't know, is taught in film courses on creating tension. I'm not trying to claim one did it better than the other, but to see the simple scene unfold and still have it arise the same feeling I felt in Inglorious Bastards gave me hope. Hope that despite the absolute death of originality, creativity can still readapt or recommunicate something and not lose any of its punch. 
The scenes in both films create the same amount of tension, but the purpose or focus of that tension is different. The tension in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly comes from The Bad's lack of communication and his intimidating performance. In Glorious Bastards, attention comes from our historical understanding of the Nazis as bad guys. Though I guess we're finding out more and more that not everyone is on that wavelength. But it also creates tension through having Christoph Waltz perform a charming and charismatic German gentleman, the polar opposite of our notion of a Nazi. Yet the danger is still there, made all the more sinister by his apparent giddy at the slaughter of innocents. Maybe I, maybe I do like Tarantino's more, but that's, that's not the point. I'm not saying he did it better. I'm just saying I like it better. The point is that no one is better. The point I'm trying to make is that these are two very simple scenes, building towards a similar effect in its audience, but for different reasons and by completely different means. Sometimes it takes seeing something simple in a new light to realize the beauty of it. Which takes us back to the menu, to something I didn't really discuss. The cheeseburger. The cheeseburger, I feel, has become associated with being unhealthy. It's a greasy, fried slab of red meat with slices of processed, hormone-filled American cheese it all sits in between two thick, gluten-filled sesame seed buns. But I'm still proud to say that the cheeseburger is the American staple dish. It's that and a hot dog at Wrigley Field. I feel they both speak to what I wish being American meant. Individuality. Because the beauty of a cheeseburger is in the customization. I like mine plain. Some people like all the toppings. Some just the lettuce. Others the onions. Some people put relish on it. Others ketchup and mayo. Some people don't even like cheese and they get it without. We call that the hamburger, but it's still a cheeseburger at heart. Because the heart of the cheeseburger is what makes you, you. It's your individuality. To criticize someone's cheeseburger for their choice of toppings, for their taste, for their individuality, is to misunderstand the beauty of the cheeseburger entirely. Like I said earlier, I was a plain cheeseburger kid. Still am. I don't like condiments, and the only vegetable I'll maybe leave on are the pickles. As such, people criticize my cheeseburger a lot. To make matters worse, I didn't like pepperoni pizza, only cheese. Chocolate makes me sick, so I don't do candy bars, and I stick to vanilla ice cream. PB&J was always too sugary for me, so I had tuna fish sandwiches. In fact, I find bread too filling, and when I started making my own sandwiches as a kid, I would eat tuna straight from the can. To quote Kid Cudi once again, Oh, since I was young, been grooving to my own drum. Someone asks what kind of burger I want, what kind of pizza or ice cream do I want, whole wheat or grain with my PB&J, what sauces do I need for my nuggets, and I have to watch their face crinkle up as they prepare to renounce my cheeseburger as basic or perhaps even reach so far as to call it the worst. Either way, it is followed by them explaining their cheeseburger as if it was the best one, as if there could be a best one. I would like to read to you the critic's final review of Remy's plate of ratatouille. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. But there are times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations, the new needs, friends. Last night, I experienced something new, an extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconception about fine dining is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusteau's famous motto, anyone can cook. But I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. 
It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusto's, who is, in the critic's opinion, nothing less than the finest chef in France. I will be returning to Gusto's soon, hungry for more. I was not initially, when devising my viewings for this week and for this episode, going to re-watch Ratatouille. I had never seen Chef or the menu before, and thus, these were all new takes to me. It wasn't until I saw an interview with the great Doug Walker, aka the Nostalgia Critic. In the interview, Mr. Walker was asked about the almost universal criticism he got on his Nostalgia Critic review. I won't bore you with all the details, but it sort of seems like Doug Walker loves Pink Floyd's The Wall and really wanted to remake it, possibly as a love letter. But in order to get around copyright law, he'd have to use the classic fair use reason of criticism. So in spite of Mr. Walker's clear love for the source material, he occasionally throughout will just make seemingly personal attacks on the artist rather than the art. People of course flocked to defend Pink Floyd's cheeseburger and the internet was satiated once the next drama started. If you like a fantastic video breaking it down, check out Folding Ideas video on the subject. Links to the channel and the video in the show notes below. I've never seen Pink Floyd's The Wall or Doug Walker's review, but I did watch the drama unfold and I sided with the internet. Bear in mind, this came out over three years ago, but about a year ago, Doug did an interview with a, from what I can tell from this video, is a very talented interview who goes by Double Toasted Interviews. Link to the channel in this interview will be in the show notes below. And a week ago, it popped up in my YouTube feed. In the interview, Doug had this to say about his work. No, you want people to look at and like it and enjoy your work, and, and you want to try and spread ideas and joy and stuff and that one obviously got really taken in a direction that i was not intending but that's part of putting yourself out there again there's there's something to being a critic there's a line in a ratatouille you've seen that movie i'm yeah, saying the Pixar yeah. movie right the, the critic has a really great speech at the end uh and one of the lines that really stuck out to me he said we risk very little as a critic and that always stuck out to me and i remember that you know even though i i love what critics do i love talking about ideas and stuff like that there is almost a legit point to that because you kind of give your opinion and someone can either agree with you or disagree with you i like the idea of putting something out there that is also a production that i'm putting something out there that can also be reviewed it, it, it's not something it's oh it's bulletproof because you know it's a review no it can also be critiqued the visuals can be critiqued the ideas can be critiqued the characters the dialogue the music uh, as well. So for me, for people to get that passionate and talk about it, do you hope it's something they like? Yes. But even if it's something that they're just getting so passionate and they feel it's worth talking about, that to me is elevating what reviews can be and should be. This has been more than just a review of three films and a discussion about the production of Iron Man 2. It's also been me attempting to express myself. I've exposed some element of my cheeseburger and have opened some aspect of myself up to criticism. A part of my criticism is now more deeply rooted in who I am as an individual. And how did I do that? Through the simplicity of writing and talking. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you back next week. Sprezzatura, carpe diem, agnegate, synecdoche, and good night. You've been listening to Quiet Up There, hosted by Cameron Perry on 85.7 FM The Fizz. Tune in next week for episode two and keep an eye out for any new shows coming to our network. 85.7 FM, The Fizz. Fizz.